This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas and compare and contrast it to films from days gone by in the same genre, same filmmaker, same vibe, and hopefully you will see and hear about something you have not heard about before. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm a journalist here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald, bidding you a hearty cheerio to this edition of Lens Me Your Ears. And uh, yeah, thanks, Stephen. <laughs> uh, this, this edition of Lens Me Your Ears number 92 is looking at films set in the grand old town of London, London, England, London, UK. And that, well, we'll explain exactly what qualifies as a London movie. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next hour. Welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that looks at new films in theaters and connects them to films from days gone by. And we've got a, a, a whopper of a topic for this week. Uh, it's uh, there's it's such a wide range to cover. I don't know how um, we're going to get everything we want to talk about into this show. We're definitely going to be leaving a lot of stuff out of this show. But uh, I think it'll be fun to uh, visit jolly old England, and in particular the capital city of London, one of the greatest cities in the world, and uh, definitely one that has made an impression on the silver screen going back to the very earliest days of motion picture making. In fact, we're not going to go back that far, but, but some of the earliest images ever captured on film or moving images uh, actually came from England because, uh, of course, uh, the movie biz was developing in Paris, in New York, and in London right around the same time. So uh, cinema is very deeply embedded in, uh, in jolly old London town, and uh, we're going to take a meandering trip through some of its many neighborhoods over the course of this next hour. Yeah, and I mean, we're starting with two films, as it happens, that are in cinemas right now that are set in London. And, you know, I think when we did our Films of New York uh, episode back early, early days, I think maybe our second episode. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we decided that uh, there had to be location cinematography. There had the, the, the town had to play a role in the, uh, in the movie in a way that felt really substantial. So, so I think... You know, distinguishing locations, places you recognized, um, not just interiors. So it wasn't all done on a soundstage. The uh, movies that really use the city to its greatest effect. Um, and so that, for New York, of course, we had plenty to talk about there. Um, these two new movies in cinemas now both definitely use the town well. And uh, though I felt I had different feelings about the two movies, we'll talk about them yes, now. Yes, for sure. The, the Good Liar. It was starring Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren, sort of a um, a mystery sort of con artist movie uh, that, uh, you know, uses those actors' talents. Well, I really like them, but I didn't much like the movie, but we'll get into it. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to talk about that one for too long. <laughs> um, and, then, and then Last Christmas, which is a, uh, you know, it's the thing that really annoys me about uh, holiday seasonal movies is they often open early November and they just seem so way too early and uh, and they just seem too saccharine and and I avoid them like the plague generally but I I was kind of a little bit curious about this one so I went to see it and I surprised myself by uh, really liking it so you know there you have it um, it is uh, you know it, it, it you, never, you just never know and and I have to say one of the things I really liked about last Christmas is how well it uses the locations uh, Covent Garden they must have shot in there for weeks uh, lo though it looks like mostly at night um, yes when they're 
there's Definitely. nobody around. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, let's start with a good liar. Um, Roy, played by Ian McKellen, he's an 80-year-old con artist, a man for whom lying is as common as breathing, and he's looking to swiddle, swindle a recent widow, Betty McLeish, played, as I mentioned, by the wonderful Helen Mirren, of her life savings. Now, uh, he's an enterprising sort of guy. He's already got a con on the go with his pal Vincent, played by Jim Carter, who was on screen recently as Mr. Carson in the Downton Abbey movie. Um, and uh, they, they have a whole thing going on, sort of a side bet, a side project, but uh, it soon becomes uh, Roy's main project to uh, get close to Betty and take over her her money, her fortune. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those movies where I, I know con artist movies always have a twist, and I appreciate that. And, I, and usually it means that the con artiste is being conned themselves. And I think... I think you can assume, fairly assume, that Roy is heading for some kind of comeuppance, but you don't really know exactly what. But if you watch it closely enough, hopefully you should be able to see where it's coming from. Except this is the kind of movie where there are so many revelations in the third act that you could never have predicted from the first that it feels like a bit of a con on the audience. Like, I was frustrated by it because I felt like... There's there's so much information given in flashbacks that come in the third act. I mean, a movie where there are two major flashbacks that don't come until the very end feels unbalanced. And that was my biggest problem. with. Yeah, this. it's based on a novel. And I'm curious to know what how the novel handles it. I suspect that maybe it doesn't load up the third act or the fi- you know, the final uh, few chapters with a bunch of sudden revelations that turn everything you know, on its head. And, and, uh, but maybe for the purposes of film, they decided that, you know, they didn't want to spoil things too early on. And, and, um, you know, weirdly, I was just listening to someone talk about Hitchcock. Actually, it was Ryan Johnson, uh, uh, talking about Knives Out, but also talking about how Hitchcock hated mysteries. You know, he, he liked the audience to be kind of one up on the characters and that is not what's happening here. Um, you know, they, they obviously are trying to go for some sort of Hitchcockian suspense kind of stuff, but, but when they hold so much back until the very last minute, um, that is, that does feel like a bit of a cheat. I, I definitely enjoyed the movie more than you did. I, I didn't feel like the rug had been pulled out from under me because I was waiting for it. Like, I mean, I knew that there was something, the movie had something up its sleeve. Uh, you know, Helen Mirren was playing her cards a little too close to the chest and, uh, and so when you know when these final revelations come along, uh, I, I didn't I didn't necessarily feel cheated by it, but I but I see your point that it's kind of a, a cheap trick in a way to play on the audience. Yeah, yeah, and you know there are things to enjoy. I mean, I, I, Bill Condon is a filmmaker who's done good work in the past. I, I like Mr. Holmes, which was his his film he did with. Uh, with Ian McKellen, where, he, where McKellen played sort of an aging Sherlock Holmes. And I really like Kinsey from some years ago. Um, I wasn't much of a fan of his his efforts to uh, bring Twilight sequels to the screen, no. nor Dreamgirls, which I thought was a musical that wasn't all that special. But, um, but yeah, you know, there are... He really, and we're, you know, we're talking this episode about London. He does use locations quite well. He, he, he you can... I mean, I would have just watched an hour and a half of these characters wandering through the posh shops and like places like Lock and Co, which is where he, he gets his hats and and they're you know yes. these, these <laughs> super super expensive uh, exclusive clothing stores in the West End. Yes, contrasted um, with Helen Mirren with her character's uh, home in the the dreary outer suburbs. Yeah, you know, which we see from above, and she's picked one on the very 
outskirts of the suburbs. So it's, you know, just the, it looks, it looks like a street in North America. It doesn't look like England at all, to be yeah. honest, but I'm sure there are lots of those kind of developments that have cropped up in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, so you get that contrast between sort of modern dreary, uh, kind of generic England versus the part that actually has character that, uh, that is instantly recognizable. So the, the, there is lots of flavor in it. There is lots of character. Um, but you're right. Plot wise, uh, it could send you <laughs> out of the theater and screaming. Um, and of course the, the, the condom film I recommend is, uh, Gods and Monsters. Oh, right. Sure, uh, sure. uh, cause this is, I think the fourth time he's worked with McKellen, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, in that one, McKellen was playing James Whale, the great, um, British born, but you know, Hollywood based director of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, um, you know, in his later years when he feels like uh, the movie business has forgotten him and he's um, just trying to find some happiness. And, uh, you know, that's eluding him as well. So I definitely check out Gods and Monsters. Uh, you know, The Good Liar, if you like, you know, if you like these characters, these actors, uh, and, and who doesn't really, um, you know, it's still worth a watch, but yeah. maybe not a high priority. No, there's and there's a scene in the tube that I, I thought was well done and actually kind of shocking. Oh, yes. Violence. Yes. Um, but uh, yes, again, speaking of London locations. Now, Last Christmas, directed by Paul Feig, who is a, I guess, a, you know, one of the most well-regarded comedy directors in uh, in Hollywood uh, for having done Bridesmaids and films of that sort. I think Spy, wasn't that him as well? Yep. Um, now... You know, if you've seen the trailers for Last Christmas, it isn't hard to figure out the twist. And this is something that I know film Twitter was all <laughs> over. It's like, is yes. is the, one of the lead characters a ghost? I mean, that was the big question. I mean, you could just buy the trailer. You're like, it seems to suggest this is the case. But, you know, the film was written by or co-written by Emma Thompson. And I just felt like she wouldn't do something quite so obvious. But you can't. What I say to that is you can't blame the the movie on the marketing department. If, if you went into this not knowing anything, you probably still have a pretty good chance of figuring out the twist. You do. Um, but, <laughs> I definitely did. And, and I feel like that's something that is is uh, a debit. You know, it's 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 not something that I am, uh, that about the movie that impresses me. What does impress me is the fact that it has that kind of uh, Richard Curtis-esque kind of charm to it, which is fill the film full of, fully realized characters, some of whom are just there for dramatic effect, not for comedic effect, have have them so vivid that you feel like you could take a detour and spend the rest of the movie with one of the side characters rather than the central characters, and, and that way you wind up caring about them, and also root it in a world that looks, even when there might be, and I'm not going to say if there is, but there might be magic realist kind of qualities to the film, <laughs> um, you know, make it seem like it's a real world. And I very much believe that this is the real world. The story, more or less, is about a young woman. She um, she is recovering from a cardiac-related health crisis from years past. She might be considered sort of a party person, a party girl. She meets a mysterious, handsome stranger. Um, now, the, the two main characters are played by Amelia Clark and Henry Golding, who you might remember from Crazy Rich Asians, which was a big hit last year, um, and uh, and the whole thing is is set in London around Covent Garden, and uh, and it's surrounded by uh, George Michael music, which is <laughs> actually surprisingly charming. Uh, I was never a huge George Michael fan, while I always recognized his talent. He's an amazing 
uh, voice, but uh, his songs sometimes left me cold. But, uh, you know, in, in this kind of a story set around the holidays, it really works. Um, Let's yeah. not forget a crucial use of uh, fine young cannibals. Right, Just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is very well placed. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So there is some more 80s stuff in there. Um, now, uh, as I mentioned, the script, uh, written by Bryony Kimmings and Emma Thompson, uh, Thompson, who came up with the story alongside her, her husband, actor Greg Wise. And uh, yeah, and, and like I said, it, it follows that Richard Curtis, Richard Curtis, of course, famed for his London set rom-coms, uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and Love Actually, which has its detractors, but I am a big fan of those films, and if you're interested in films set in London, they are all essential. Uh, but yeah, this kind but of we didn't watch. We didn't watch any for this podcast. <laughs> no, we've talked about that in our rom-com so, episode. Yes. But um, yeah, so, you know, I think this isn't a perfect film. It has some problems. Um, I, I, I felt like Emma Thompson, although I love her, is just playing it a little too broad as the mother of our lead character uh, and with her accent from uh, a former Yugoslavia. Uh, I, I really like that there is some sort of anti-Brexit uh, uh, material here. I mean, again, that adds to its feeling of being a real place and things are actually happening. But um, yeah, there, there were things that just didn't quite work for me. But overall, I was really charmed by the film. And I thought, oh, oh, this, I just got carried away by it because I felt like there's enough humor and enough engagement to keep me interested. Yeah, far be it for me to take a romantic comedy to task for not being realistic. Uh, but but the, you know there are attempts to place this in the real world and 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 have uh, real world events and concerns. Uh, you know, hovering around the edges of our of these characters' lives, and uh, and I think it's fairly effectively done without um, you know weighing too heavily or or you know dragging one side down. I, I think. Uh, I think it's pretty effective as romantic comedies go. They, they, I find that they're almost kind of a lost art in a way. Like we, we don't get that many, um, you know, not like we did in the, the McConaughey boom of a decade or so ago. Yeah, they've kind of gone. I mean, Netflix has a number of them, but there's not that many in cinemas anymore. Yeah, not certainly not in cinemas, and 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 I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe. Maybe there's a lack of charming leading men out there, <laughs> or something like that. I'm not, sh- you know, like that that you that both parties can invest in when they they go to these films but but I like both of these characters I like both of these actors uh, I think uh, I think I may have mentioned that uh, uh, Amelia Clark uh, was probably the best thing about Terminator Genesis uh, when we did our uh, you know our Arnie uh, Arnie's back show not too long ago so uh, and and she's great here I, I did not watch Game of Thrones uh, but now I'm tempted to <laughs> she, she's great um, I mean there's lots of other actors I like that are on that show that I just never got around to watching it but but uh, but now I've got another reason to actually watch it she's very charming I look forward to seeing her more stuff uh, I like that she's you know she's kind of cynical she's not really a romantic uh, which I think gives the film a little bit more edge you know she's she's very cynical about love and life and and her her repartee with Michelle Yeoh the great Michelle Yeoh um, you know who I know from decades of um, you know Hong Kong action films and and uh, and Crouching Tiger and and you know most people probably remember her from Crazy Rich Asians as well uh, more recently but uh, you know I can watch her uh, do just about anything it's just such a treat to see her on a big screen and she's wonderful here as the proprietor of the Christmas shop that uh, that uh, Kate em- Emilia's character works in um, they have a great repartee uh, in fact unfortunately one of the downsides the romance that they conjure up for her character is I don't get it. <laughs> 
it, it actually, yeah. it's a weird kind of left field thing that doesn't translate. I don't know if there's information missing or scenes missing from that, uh, from that whole arrangement. It's, it's more creepy than charming. Um, yeah, I'm with you there. I, I wondered if maybe I don't know was, what's going on there. I, I wonder the, the, without again, spoiling the magic realist twist. No, I wondered if this character also was somehow representative of some kind of a, of a, of wish fulfillment for, uh, for Michelle Yeoh's uh, character and I, uh, but is she? I mean, it isn't. Um, the one thing about it, though, I did like is that the actor they've chosen is an actor. He's a Danish actor that I remember from the Danish TV series Borgen. Uh, and I was like, okay. where do I know him from? And he then, does boom. look really familiar. <laughs> yeah, and that's where he was in. He played a politician in that in that show, which is it's sort of nice to see him again. But yes, I agree. It, it isn't really very well explained why it is it's all sunshine and rainbows when this guy just suddenly appears and then vanishes. In a way, it's almost like a parallel story to what's going on with the central characters, but uh, but it, it, it's just sort of left hanging. Yeah, I don't know if that was injected just to give Michelle Yeoh a little something more to do, uh, maybe, which, you know, it's like, We've got this amazing woman, this internationally acclaimed actress, and we're not really doing much beyond making her the kind of shrewish but understanding boss. Uh, let's let's give her a romance, which I'm all for, but it's handled in, like, I think there's stuff that's supposed to be funny that isn't, a, you know, maybe somebody can enlighten me, but... Uh, yeah, I, I just didn't. <laughs> I can't. Understand. I can't, Stephen. I I am with you there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, this isn't a perfect film, uh, but I think I went in with such low expectations that I found myself uh, more and more charmed by it, and uh, and and you know, just warmed by it in a way that I think that's what it's supposed to do. I think as a Christmas romantic comedy, that's that's its task. Yeah, and I, I liked Emma Thompson's role just fine. I mean, I, I felt that was kind of maybe on a moonstruck level of you know, Olympia Dukakis pitched. Uh, right, level right, of performance, <laughs> so uh, I, I was I was down with that. Uh, it, it's a little overstated, sure, but that's uh, that's the nature of it. And and we do get a bit of Richard Curtis in there uh, when they're watching Blackadder's Christmas Carol. I spotted that as well. I love that they snuck that in there as you know as a kind of sideways tribute to the uh, British rom-com master. So that was that was a nice little surprise. And and uh, you know I'd, I've certainly come to appreciate George Michael a little bit more over the years uh, than maybe when he was having his heyday, just because of the uh, ubiquity of his music at the time. But I find that, um, but here the, the songs work well, and uh, you know that you get to hear different versions of the songs that kind of uh, highlight their charms. You're listening to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast. My name is Karsten. My name is Stephen. And today we are talking about films set in London. Now, as we mentioned, we've done a New York movies episode ages ago. Um, and uh, when I was assembling this uh, a list of movies that I want to revisit or movies I'd never seen before for this particular episode, I was thinking about ones that I think we've either talked about before or at least mentioned in passing. And films, and those films include Truly Madly Deeply, which everyone who knows me knows I'm a huge <laughs> fan of. I know it was partly shot in Bristol, but the, it's a London movie for scenes set at Primrose Hill and to the South Bank with all the hopping. Um, of course, Withnell and I am a big fan of. We talked about that in our films of 1987, and that's uh, there's scenes in Regent's Park and in Camden Town. Uh, there's uh, Closer for the Postman's Park sequence. 84 Charing Cross Road is a must-see for anyone who loves rare books or the art of letter writing, though it's as much a New York movie as it is a London movie. That's true. Um, you know, even some recent action movies like Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Fast and Furious I think 6 had like 
action sequences set in London, which were amazing. Um, of course, we can't not mention 28 Days Later for that amazing opening yes, segment. Yes, true enough. Um, where the city looks empty in, in, at dawn. Um, I, I've been looking for Michael Winterbottom's Wonderland, about three sisters living in the city, which includes Canadian Molly Parker doing a British accent. It's a charmer, but it's really hard to find. I know because I've been looking for a while. Yeah, I, and I've I, not I, been able I, to I find went through it. all the streaming things that I have, and yeah, it's not on there. Um, of course, we spoke about Daniel Day-Lewis in one of our previous episodes and his film My Beautiful Laundrette, which is a very much a London movie. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite gangster movies uh, is Eastern Promises by David Cronenberg. Yes, uh, now, gangster movies and London seem to go hand in glove. Uh, and we watched a bunch of them. This segment, I think we're going to talk about a few of the great London noir and gangster movies. Uh, going back to Night in the City, uh, Jules Dessin, who I, uh, I don't know this filmmaker very well, but I'm assuming you probably do, Stephen. You know more of his work than I do. But because uh, you introduced me to this film, it's something that's been on my list to watch for a while because it's considered one of the great noirs from 1950. Uh, and it's about a character named Harry Fabian, played with great energy by Richard Widmark. And uh, he is a, it's, well, he's he's kind of a grifter living in London, and and it's it's funny because in the first twenty minutes you think oh there's only Americans living in London because he's meeting Gene <laughs> yes. Tierney who plays an American character, and uh, and Hugh Marlowe another American, uh, but what Harry wants is to be someone. He's always wanted to make a big splash, and so he's trying to break into wrestling promotion in London. But there are a lot of heavies in there. There's a lot of bad people, and. Uh, I just, it, of course, he 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 has opportunities. It looks like he's just a, a minute away from getting everything he wants and having this huge, you know, uh, windfall, this huge moment where he can really be someone, as he says. But it just starts to go sour with him, and uh, before long, he's on the run from a lot of bad people, including Herbert Lom, who is, I don't think I've ever seen him, that actor, in anything where he's been so young. Like, I just was like, oh, oh my gosh, yeah, this, this is, is kind of early for him. Yeah. I mean, he, he's an actor who I was introduced to through the Pink Panther movies. Oh, same here, yeah. And so just to see him so young and so intense, I mean, it's it's really something. This is a, a pretty amazing noir picture, um, and it does use London. I mean, it's almost entirely shot at night. And it feels like all the characters, they just live at night. They don't do anything but, like, they must sleep through the day because everyone's awake and doing stuff all night. And um, I really like that about it. It, um, And I really like Widmark. He's he's so desperate in this film. He's totally wired. And, uh, wow, he's something to see. Yeah, this is definitely one of his great performances. And um, I, uh, you know, this is one I held off on watching for the longest time. I think maybe because the... Uh, uh, maybe the remake with Robert De Niro left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. Sure, uh, and uh, and so it took me a while to get around to this version. But I I shouldn't have I shouldn't have worried about it. I mean, Jules Dessin is a, is a terrific filmmaker. Uh, you know, he wound up in Europe because of the Hollywood blacklist. He made some fantastic, um, you know, crime noir type pictures. Uh, Naked City is a big one. Um, I think he I think he made uh, was it Raw. Um, uh, Brute Force, rather, which is a great, uh, great prison film in the noir mold with Sterling uh, Hayden, uh, and, and you know, so he, he he was really good with working with these kinds of hard bitten, tough guy kind of actors. And then he would he went to Europe just to get away from the blacklist. Um, this is still kind of a Hollywood production. Uh, I think it was released through Fox, um, but then he went on to make Rafifi, 
which was the uh, oh that's the, right that was him yeah, too that was him. yeah 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 and right he, he made the greek uh, comedy about a greek prostitute never on a sunday with melina mercuri who i think he wound up marrying um you know he did some and top cappy the great uh, turkish set uh, kind of heist movie with peter ustinov uh, and also with melina mercuri uh, another uh, terrific film so you know he continued to do work he was probably one of the few kind of success stories i guess out of the blacklist and that he fared a lot better than than most did uh and uh you know so of course you can always try and read um some uh, subtext into this film i suppose of the of widmark's character uh just trying to scrape together enough money and trying to get some respect and trying to you know pull off this wrestling match and and take home a big purse and all that kind of stuff and manage this this wrestler and you know, just a, every step he takes is takes him in the wrong direction, and it's just this descent into hell for him. And uh, I, you know, I just I just uh, loved it. It just really gets into the underbelly of the city. It's still recovering from the Blitz, uh, which I think is sort of maybe not felt quite so forcefully. But anytime he's running down a street and you see a vacant lot or a pile of rubble or what what have you, you know, you can feel that the, the wounds that run through this city. Uh, from you know just a few years before, so uh, you know that, there are lots of Norris set in in, in London. Uh, I actually have uh, a couple of sets of uh, of Hammer film produced uh, sort of crime pictures, Noirs if you want to call them that. I think they're more just sort of crime thrillers and mysteries and that kind of thing. But they're they're packaged as Noir because that's I guess that's more uh, sellable, I suppose. Um, but you know I don't. They're all kind of made on a lower budget. They don't have someone like Dessin behind the camera and. Um, you know, they're enjoyable, but they don't quite reach the peaks that Night in the City does. Right. Yeah. No, I'm glad that you showed it to me, and I, I'm really ha- happy to be able to catch up with it. Um, now, we also saw uh, a couple of, of uh, gangster pictures from the 60s. Uh, Ken Loach did a, a film called Poor Cow, which I think I was mostly aware of because some of the footage from it was used exactly, yeah. by Steven Soderbergh um, in the Limey. And uh, it's from the Neil Dunn novel. And it's got that handheld anti-glamour look uh, of the kitchen sink, sink cinema, um, and uh, it's you know it, it's it's amazing that Ken Loach is still making movies. Like that guy has got an incredible career if you consider just the length and breadth of it. Um, but uh, this is a story about a young woman. She gets pregnant when still a teenager uh, from her gangster kind of you know bad sort. A husband, Tom, and uh, he's a real piece of work, and she doesn't have much in the way of self-esteem. When Tom goes away to prison, she takes up with one of Tom's criminal buddies, played by Terrence Stamp, uh, and she's played by Carol White, Tom by uh, John Binden. Um, you know, it's it's one of those films where I really like the sort of, that sense of realism. Uh, clearly, the fact that these films were done in a, a low budget, there's not a lot of glamour at all. Uh, and I like the jagged editing, how it goes from one scene to another very quickly. There's a great scene that there's kind of a chase sequence in a, a street scene where the cars oh, yeah. are being like pulled out and, and it's all done handheld. And you get the sense that they might have done it guerrilla style because everyone's just all the, the people on the sidewalk standing around watching, and these are not extras. Like, these are just no. people who happen to and be And it just there. comes out of nowhere. Like, you hear about them planning the job. Uh, you never actually, I don't think you actually see any of the criminal jobs happen. You know, you hear about smash and grabs after the fact. In this case, they talk about a scaffold job, which I guess is when they're um, going to go up some work scaffolding, I guess, and get into an office and get into the safe. And that's, and we see the aftermath of that with that arrest. And it's, it's, but it's just, so we know the job is happening. We don't see it happen, but then we just see the, the arrest and everybody scattering. And, and, uh, it's just, 
you know, it's just so sudden that it's, it's completely shocking. And of course, that's how it would affect her too. Um, you know, she would just hear about the aftermath when her husband's yeah. being sent up uh, to Wormwood Scrubs or Dartmoor Prison or wherever they sent him. Um, you know, one of those great foreboding palaces of, of crime uh, that uh, there must be some good British prison pictures out there too but this is this isn't really one of them she does go to visit her husband and uh and later um uh terrence stamps character i think tom um when when he gets dave Dave, Dave, right and tom's husband when dave gets nicked as well but uh you know and she's it's it's a really interesting look at the life of a woman who you know she's she comes from a you know a disadvantaged background and of course the the men who seem to provide the most opportunities are the ones that are involved in the dodgiest um circumstances it's and they're 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 stuck in this horrible outlying borough of, of London. I think they're in, it was filmed in Middlesex. I don't know. I, yeah, Roy Slip. I guess they actually say in the film yeah, that they're, right. in, they're in Roy Slip in Middlesex, which just, you know, just uh, those apartment blocks, uh, council estates, I guess mm-hmm. is what they're called. And, um, you know, it just seems really quite dreary. And, and uh, you know, you can see her wishing for a better life, but having no real life, you know, she doesn't have the education or the wherewithal. You know, she talks about getting elocution lessons to, to, to better herself. I mean, she's, she's definitely smart. She's definitely motivated. It's just, a, the, you know, trying to rise above her circumstances. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I knew about the film for years. It was not available. I think it is available now. You can get the DVD through, I think, maybe the Columbia, one of their MOD uh, programs. You can order them probably through Amazon or some online retailer, and it's probably streaming somewhere. But, um, you know, it was it was just not available in North America for the longest time. And I the only reason I knew about it was from looking at Ken Loach's filmography, and it was one of his earliest films. Um, and, the, and then also, uh, you know, maybe not the greatest source, but Morrissey used to tout it as being one of his... Uh, favorite films, of course. He, he was a huge fan of Terrence Stamp, uh, and uh, and you know would probably you know bury references to his favorite films in the lyrics of Smith's songs. Um, Isn't didn't the Kinks also write about their famous favorite films? Because we've we've oh, talked about that too. Oh sure. Well, well, uh, there's a direct reference to Terrence Stamp in Waterloo Sunset, which is my favorite song of all time. It talks about Terry and Julie, which is Julie Christie. Um, you know, uh, far it, from the madding crowd. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I. I think that's the only film they made together but anyway I, you know that was the film that would have been out at the time so you know he puts them in a kind of a kitchen sink kind of thing so you know this this does sort of follow from the kitchen sink dramas of the early 60s but it feels you know a little more progressive uh, there's a great use of music throughout the film which might be one of the reasons why it was hard to find on home video for so long um and there's a lot of humor in it there was uh, you know when i first watched it, i thought oh, it was gonna be one of those it's gonna be another grim angry kitchen sink drama but it's not at all um, you know, Carol White's character is very, you know, she's, she's an optimist. Um, she's very, she's very pleasant. I mean, she's very pretty, but she's also, you know, she's trying to use her, her, her wits to, to, to make the most of life for her and her son and, and, you know, changes loyalties a couple times through the course of the film. And, and, and but it's, but never, you never really fall out of favor with her character, you know, over the course of the film. And it's a wonderful portrayal and, and, uh, certainly a, a a great uh, impetus to watch more Ken Loach films. I've also seen uh, Kess, which is right. uh, a terrific film about a boy and the Kestrel that he trains, and um, which is available through Criterion. It's not set in London. It's set in uh, somewhere up north in the North Country in Yorkshire, I think. Um, but uh, but these early films of his are, are truly wonderful portraits of of uh, yeah life uh, on the other side of the tracks. Uh, now we also watched Robbery, 
which is from the same year, 1967. It's from Peter Yates, a filmmaker who probably went on to uh, films that were better known, certainly Bullet with Steve McQueen, and he had a solid career in Hollywood. Uh, Robbery opens with an amazing chase, which I can understand if anyone watched it, uh, you know, studio heads in Hollywood watched it and said, all right, that guy's got something, because it is very impressive. Through the streets of 1960s London, including the Holborn Viaduct, other West End locations, and uh, as for our requirements of London street scenes, this film probably has twice as many as any on the <laughs> on our list. Um, it's roughly or, or loosely based on the great train robbery, and there is a train heist later on. It's But it's overall a really cracking thriller. It's well shot. The kind of thing that I probably would have seen as a kid on, you know, Saturday afternoon or something and absolutely really enjoyed. Uh, it is typically male-centric, the only female character being a woman who's sort of a... Uh, connected to one of the gang and is sort of a nag on uh, on her husband's or partner's uh, criminal activities, um, you know, that uh, he, he lies about wanting to go straight. Um, but uh, one of the things that the movie proved to me is that the Jaguar Mark II has, <laughs> has to be the most preferred vehicle for London gangsters and thieves, uh, at least in movies from the 60s to the 80s. I, we're going to talk about Bob Hoskins and Mona Lisa. He has one that he's been kept in a garage somewhere just for him when he gets out of jail. And they're <laughs> everywhere. I mean, they're in all these movies. I keep seeing the same car. Oh, and the, and in these the Sweeney movies, which we'll talk about later, uh, they're quite prominent as well. And, and and if you can find some background on those films and, and how often they just patched up the same cars and somehow kept them looking good even while they were completely falling apart. Um, but they needed them for one more chase scene or they whatever. They probably had like one car car wrangler or car you know and they just kept bringing out the same vehicles yeah just painting them painting over the scratches and putting them back on the road um robbery is a terrific film now i had not watched it recently um but uh you know i was it was one of those films i kept reading about it over and over and over again and not seeing it anywhere and uh i just felt um yeah i i felt it was uh kind of a unfortunate that it was not really available when it did come out as a british uh, dvd I, I picked up a copy it was it was a bargain price disc and I'm, I'm really happy to have it because bullet's one of my favorite uh action films of all time so to see the film that kind of formed the template for it uh was a real treat and just and some of my favorite british character actors are in it as well stanley baker who's a tough bitten hard-boiled kind of guy he's in the zulu um he's in a great film called hell drivers with the uh, young sean connery and patrick McGowan, uh guns and Navarone. um uh, Barry Foster, uh, who uh, well turns up as the villain in Frenzy, the Hitchcock film, another great London film that we didn't really watch for this episode, but um, is a real favorite of mine, and it was Hitchcock's kind of return to uh, the city of his birth, I guess, uh, in, in fine form. It's a film that certainly has been talked about enough, but if you want to see a great, gritty London thriller, definitely see Frenzy. And Barry, I, think, Barry, I think we talked about it in our Hitchcock I episode. I think we did, yeah, yeah, so we don't really need to revisit it, but Barry Foster is one of the key reasons, and he shows up in uh, the first Sweeney movie from the 70s, so uh, uh, as a really oily press agent, uh, and he's fantastic. So definitely a lot of faces that that I love to see in films, and if, if you haven't seen them, you'll certainly enjoy them uh, here. But the, but the chase sequences are really the reason that this film uh, is kind of remembered today and the reason why Peter Yates got the job on Bullet. Um, we also watched Villain from 1971, another yes. very much in this sort of same feel uh, where Richard Burton plays a very unpleasant man uh, who's looking to do a big heist, but things go pretty wrong when one of his crew, uh, after they've done the heist, played by Joss Ackland, absconds with the money. Um, there's not 
a lot more of the plot than that, really. It's just a largely series of meetings between cockney tough guy actors, everyone calling everyone else their friend, even when they don't seem that friendly at all. Uh, Ian McShane is the younger version, sort of a younger version of Burton's character. He's, he's sleazy, but maybe yet not quite so nasty. Um, and uh, in order to maintain his quality of life, he lies to his girlfriends and to his mates, but mostly about the fact that he and Burton's character are having an illicit affair. So that element of homosexuality, um, you know, is played as sort of part of the tragedy, which is, I think, speaks to the times in which this film was made, which I think is actually kind of lame. But it uh, and it reminded me that Guy Ritchie, who is, of course, a great uh, filmmaker of of gangster movies set in London, he utilized a gay character played by Tom Hardy in his picture, Rock and Rolla, which was, I think, a lot more successful. But, you know, back in 71, I can imagine that this would have seemed fairly progressive even just to have a homosexual element in a gangster picture. And uh, and there were things about Villain that I enjoyed, mostly Richard Burton being so venal and unpleasant. <laughs> yes. he, he He's very menacing here, and you fully believe that he's a guy not to be messed with. Uh, and, you know, and some things I've read about this film were that it was kind of the film that ended his career as a leading man in, in some ways. I, I don't know um, if it was this film in particular, but but certainly after Villain, uh, then you get into things like Exorcist to the, the Heretic and, and, and so on. And, and he's kind of you can tell he's just sort of cashing a check or whatever. But here but here he feels he feels invested in this character. He you know, he. I think you said that early on in the film, he kind of oversells the the Cockney a little bit, um, and but I think he eases. I think he pull. I think he eases off the gas on that uh, as the film goes along, and I just love that seventies, early seventies uh, British crime milieu. Um, you know the the pubs and the casinos where even when things are supposed to be classy, they they're still seedy. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, just just because it's the '70s and uh, I, I, you know, the atmosphere. It's this film is so rife with atmosphere and character details and 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 so on that that uh, it, it really is kind of a trip back through time to another place. Um, you know, clearly inspired by the the Cray brothers, although you know he doesn't have a brother. Um, but but uh, you know, uh, Burton's character is definitely. Uh, Ronnie Cray esque in his, um, you know, in his affectations and 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 so on. You know, his devotion to his mother. You know, that's another sort of Cray trait um, that uh, is uh, echoed in a big way here. Uh, it, it, like, no, I, I saw this. Uh, it is available, I think, maybe through the the Warner Archive um, uh, series of discs. But uh, I saw it on TCM, and it does show up there from time to time. It was an MGM release, so uh, you know, if you see it. Uh, there or somewhere else, definitely worth a watch. Um, and it might be worth uh, noting here before our break, um, and we talk about the modern day version of it, but uh, I watched the uh, the two movies of the Sweeney, uh, which uh, was a, it was a British crime series. I think there were four seasons um, with John Thaw, who I believe most people know as Inspector Morse uh, for many seasons of that show. But here um, he's uh, the commander of the Flying Squad, which uh, was the the department in Scotland Yard that was in charge of uh, taking down armed robberies, kind of like almost kind of like the SWAT team in a way. Although they're not heavily armed, they they go into a lot of their assignments with with clubs and b- baseball bats and truncheons and and so on. But it was a successful series. There were four seasons, and then they made two theatrical films, and that allowed them to up the stakes of the violence. There's more sexual content in them that wouldn't have been allowed on TV. And, uh, and, and they're fantastic. They've recently been released on, on Blu-ray. Uh, they're very much products of their time. I mean, these, these guys are hard-bitten cops with certain attitudes 
about the criminals that they come across and the people they deal with. But the uh, thought is great as this kind of almost like a rampaging maniac through the London underworld. And, uh, and we see some familiar face. Like I say, Barry Foster shows up in the first film as, as the, the press secretary for a, uh, a British cabinet minister. And they actually mentioned the Athabascan tar sands in Alberta as a plot point because there's some sort of wheeling and dealing with the minister and uh, some uh, Arabic uh, financial interests, So, which is a little more high-toned, I think, than a lot of the, uh, the Sweeney TV episodes were. But I think they were trying to go for a bit more international intrigue on, on still on a, on a TV production shoestring budget because these films look pretty cheap. But uh, they're entirely shot on location all over London and, and some of the weird backwater industrial sites around the city that probably are, don't exist you anymore. Know, they're probably Canary Wharf now or what yeah, have you. Yeah. So um, definitely worth a look if you can find them. Uh, like I said, the, the, there have been reissues of these films. And I'm sure they're turning up in various um, you know, streaming properties and that kind of thing. Uh, it's always so hard. Like, you know, the, our methods of tracking down films are often quite different than what other people do. But th- it's, it's always good. Uh, good thing to kind of remember these titles and store them in the back of your head. But but uh, the Sweeney films definitely seem feel like British 70s crimes. It's completely the flip side of villain. In fact, they keep referring to uh, criminals as villains. There you go. Which, and it just feels like you're watching villain from the other side in a way, yeah. you know, as they track down uh, it, crooked politicians in the first film and a, and a fairly... Uh, fairly clever bunch of bank robbers in the second uh, that they they've uh, they basically live in Malta and they only come and do a crime when they need to make another payment on their uh, estate in, in, on the island of Malta it's it's kind of an interesting setup and uh, and there's some great chase sequences and um, some some personal about behind the scenes dilemmas and of course lots of drinking when they always get these cops are always going out and getting hammered when they've made an arrest it's it's an ongoing theme I'm sure it was the same on the TV show but it's it's kind of fun to watch them cut loose once they've solved a case so I'd also like to quickly mention uh, that the Sweeney was remade as a as a more modern action cop drama in 2013. It wasn't very well reviewed, but I really liked it. Uh, Ray Winstone plays grizzled veteran cop Jack Regan, lead, leading a team of Cockney Dirty Harrys, uh, while he's having an affair with the wife of one of his colleagues. Uh, or no, I guess she is one of his colleagues, Haley Atwell. But her but husband's husband the head of internal of affairs, internal affairs. So or that, special branch or whatever they call yeah, them. Yeah, so so it's very complicated. But but uh, it's got a lot of cosmopolitan London locations, including a spectacular shootout in Trafalgar Square. Um, that is very much worth seeing. If you're looking for the full Sweeney experience, don't miss seeing the 2013 uh, cop version, the full, full-fledged full uh, movie version of that. Yes, my, my father-in-law, who's British and grew up on the original show, thought it was terrific. So uh, he had a chance to see it and uh, and and. He was, you know, so he gives a, th- you know, as someone who grew up with the original show, he gives it a thumbs up. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a great grim, uh, and dark, full of surprises too. Uh, you, you know, there are some, some things hap- that happen that you don't expect to happen over the course of the film. And Ray Winston is fantastic as always. Um, so I would definitely, uh, it's, it's now it is on, I think Amazon prime is, I think is where I saw it. So it's a little more easy to see in some of these other films, but, uh, uh, you know, I love I love the the mix of sort of old London and, and new London that that it portrays, and and lots of the catchphrases from the original show show up here. You know, you're nicked and all that kind of thing. So and calling people villains. So it definitely has echoes of the original show, but but it's a pretty effective update. Ninety Second Nova Scotia is an ongoing animated series showcasing the people, places, events, and things that put Nova Scotia on the world map. 
From household names to super obscure local fare, we shine a spotlight on all of the amazing stories to come out of our region. And we do it all in 90 seconds. So search for 90 Second Nova Scotia on YouTube today, or the link is in the show notes. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. My name is Stephen Cook. And I'm Karsten Knox. And we're taking a look at films from jolly old London. Uh, I'm not going to attempt a British accent at any point in this show. I I know better. I've learned my lesson from Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. Um, Weirdly, a lot of my favorite films uh, that are London set, things like um, Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady, I think we're all shot on Hollywood sound stages. So uh, they didn't qualify for this episode, even though as a kid, that was kind of my childhood impression of London came from films like that. Which and me too, but you know, it's funny. I recently watched the Paddington movies, both the first and the second one. They're all on location, or most yes. of it, uh, but they still have that same feel about them. It's funny. They they might as well have been on sound stages by how how sort of magic they feel. You know what I mean? Well, my, my one time being in London uh, for any length of time was in 1980, so it was kind of sort of Thatcherite era, I guess. Uh, I can't remember the exact dates for that period, but it was, you know, it wasn't the... Uh, it wasn't the cool Britannia era that would come along later. And, and uh, so it was, it was, you know, punk was still kind of a thing. And, uh, but it still felt like kind of a wonderland, especially when your parents are dragging you to the Tower of London and Buckingham Palace and everything like that. So, so it, I don't know, you know, why you'd have to fake it in, in Hollywood. But, uh, you know, thankfully these films are here to remind us that it is a city of, of many characters and many, many neighborhoods and many flavors. And, and a film that highlights that is Passport to Pimlico, which is a title that uh, most people listening probably aren't that familiar with. It's a, it's a, an Ealing comedy from the great uh, film studio, Ealing Studios. Um, which is still, apparently they reopened and they're still making feature films. Yeah, it's still an entity. Uh, maybe not what it was, but but it's, it's uh, I, I got it in a box set, a North American box set from Anchor Bay that includes... Uh, Many others of their their famous comedies. Whiskey Galore might be the best known. It's about a, a an island, a teetotaling island where a shipment of whiskey washes up on shore, and what uh, what everyone goes through to uh, to take their share of it, or to cover it up, or to get rid of it. Uh, uh, the Titfield Thunderbolt about a, a rural train, uh, uh, and a couple of others. But uh, Passport oh, the, to- the Lady Killers is a great London. Also, that's also the uh, from from Ealing, isn't it? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole. Well, yeah. This is. They, they also have the whole run of films with uh, with Alec Guinness, and, and in some cases, Peter Sellers, in early in his career, shows up in some of these, and, and those are fantastic as well. But I like Passport to Pimlico. It's 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 set right after the Blitz. The war is over, but um, this particular neighborhood in in East London is uh, is still fairly devastated. There's lots of uh, rubble around, destroyed buildings, and in fact, a lot of the plot revolves around. The, fa- the need to defuse an unexploded bomb in the middle of the neighborhood, which in fact does blow up and reveals that uh, the neighborhood of Pimlico is in fact uh, a separate duchy or duchy, I guess, of uh, the king of the kingdom or the realm of Burgundy, and that in fact is not part of London or the UK. And uh, so a lot of social satire comes out of this uh, neighborhood, deciding that they're their their own country in the heart of London. And uh, it's it's a great satire. Um, Stanley Holloway as the, one of the local councillors who sort of becomes not the ruler, but maybe the kind of the head minister of this new uh, this new duchy or whatever in the middle of London. Uh, he's terrific. He's a great character actor. Uh, Hermione Badley, who is also in Mary Poppins, uh, she's terrific as well as, as one of the shopkeepers. And and uh, oddly enough, it did inspire a Nova Scotia shot film uh, by 
Paul Donovan and Salter Street films called Buried on Sunday, where a fishing a fishing community uh, discovered that they're their own country or declare their own nationality when they get a hold of a Russian submarine that washes ashore. So it, it, it is an influential and well-loved film, and it does give a great portrait of London after having survived the Blitz, but still trying to get over the scars of the war. And, um, you know, they're still dealing with ration cards and all that kind of thing. I thought it was really clever. You know, it's it, I did enjoy that that tearing up the ration card scenes and having the pubs open all night and how the the bobbies are just like, OK, the one guy's like, oh, <laughs> yes. let's, let's just going to go with it. You know, have serve me a pint, you know, and um, and then the later on the film, the, by the third act, it's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, newspapers uh, you're getting all this information about their sort of geopolitical status through news headlines. Uh, but, yeah, a, a really charming film and one where clearly the script was I mean, they is a really sophisticated humor in a way that you don't see very often. Um, yeah. So I, I keep an eye out for it. It might show up on TCM or in some other corner of, of the world uh, or try and hunt down the Anchor Bay DVDs. I don't know how rare they are these days, but some of those titles uh, go out of print. But, but it, it was a great look at, at London recovering from, you know, one of the worst things that ever hit it and, uh, and, and sort of moving forward um, to uh, a film from our lifetimes. <laughs> this is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, going, another, going back to gangsters. Going back to gangsters, but it, but it's really a character study, uh, and it's Mona Lisa, uh, directed by Neil Jordan, and um, you know a real landmark film for him in his career at the time it came out in the 1980s, and uh, and a fabulous performance by Hoskins, who was much missed, but but here he's kind of a low level gangster, fresh out of jail, um, and uh, he's just trying to get a job that's not too demanding, and he winds up um, looking after a prostitute played by Kathy Tyson, uh, and he's basically become her minder, as yeah. it were. But she has some secrets, she has a past, and she's trying to run away from those, and they involve a very grim gangster played by Michael Caine. Who, Who's also, yeah, Bob, the, uh, George's boss, who yes. he went up the river, he went to jail for three years and, and didn't didn't rat on him, so he feels uh, that his boss owes him something, and his boss is like, Caine is not, his character is so nasty in this, he's not liable to give him much, but he gives him a job doing this which is driving around uh this this uh this woman who is a prostitute and she is visiting all the fanciest hotels in the west end as well as some very big mansions and um you know i think bob hoskins at this point was familiar to people because he had been in the long good friday which is one of the great gangster movies set in london i mean it's it's a marvelous film um but mona lisa i have a real uh love for it and i have a real history with it i went to the i lived in the uk as a teenager went to high school there and i remember watching the movie when it came out in cinemas and um it's funny i have a kind of nostalgia for some of it a lot of it is shot in soho around those peep shows and sex houses of the day most of which are gone like yeah, I that has been been clearly cleared out uh gentrified but it, you know it was so sleazy in those places i mean i remember them i remember at the time being kind of a mix of fascinated and terrified by the vulgarity of of these these places but um you know it's all captured in this film in a way that's that's been, that has been long enough that I I feel a certain nostalgia, even for the sleaze of Soho, which is so changed now. But uh, yeah, Mona Lisa is is a wonderful film, and the character of George, you know, he's so naive, and he's so he's got a romantic view of the world in a way that I think is is. Uh, 
you know, he, he loves, he loves, uh, he, he falls in love with this woman and, and he can't quite help himself. He wants to help her as much as he can. And uh, it just heads for a, a dark place. Uh, also, keep your uh, fans of The Wire, keep a lookout for a young Clark Peters, uh, Lester Freeman from The Wire. Oh, right, yes. He is in this as one of the gangsters. He doesn't really have much of a role, but you will not miss him. He's there. And Robbie Coltrane as uh, George's buddy. It's always a pleasure to see Robbie Coltrane turn up in anything. And he's got a really nice part here as the guy who kind of helps him behind the scenes as yes. it were. Yeah. So now you also watched uh, a gangster picture, Layer Cake, from 2005, coming much closer to our present day. Um, now, I'm not a huge fan of Matthew Vaughn. I, he directs with style, but I find that he's all surface and no depth most of the time. Um, I did like Stardust and his X-Men movie, First Class, well enough, but I found a lot of his Kingsman movies a little... Uh, unpalatable. Um, anyway, this is one of his earlier films. It's a slick gangster movie about a drug dealer who managed to not ever have to kill anybody. He's mostly a businessman, played by Daniel Craig. You get the sense this was kind of his audition for Bond. Like he oh, made definitely. This is the film that got him Barbara Broccoli's attention. Yes, on that on that score for sure. Yeah, he, and I mean it's and he is really good, and he's surrounded by an incredible cast. Uh, you know, and a recognizable thesps like uh, Jamie Foreman, Cole Meany, Michael Gambon, and uh, actor-turned-director Dexter Fletcher, who recently, of course, directed the Elton John biopic Rocket Man. Um, and then you got Sally Hawkins, Tom Hardy, Ben Wishaw, Sienna Miller. I mean, this is uh, this is kind of one of those movies that that a lot of people in it went on to m- bigger and better things. And uh, and for that, that's one of the reasons to see it. Yeah, I think. It might come across as a bit like uh, Guy Ritchie Light, um, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe, but that feels like I'm damning it with being praised. But, um, but it is thoroughly enjoyed. Maybe because it doesn't go for a lot of the stylistic affectations of a Guy Ritchie movie. It's a, it's a much more down-to-earth, straightforward kind of film. And maybe that's why I liked it so much. And Craig has so much charisma to burn here as he uh, tries to arrange this, this deal between some, I guess, Romanian drug dealers based in Amsterdam and, uh, of course, the the London mob. There's this, a shipment of pills that has been stolen by some low-level thugs, uh, one of whom is played by Byrne Gorman, who uh, I like from uh, I liked him on Torchwood with the Doctor Who spinoff. He was terrific on there, and I've seen him in lots of other stuff since then. Um, but it's great to, to see him playing a thug here. Um, and, and Craig is trying to keep all these pieces in play and, and you know, get something out of it so he can, he wants to retire. He, does, he wants to get out of the life, as it were. And um, and uh, much like Michael Corleone in Godfather 3, they keep pulling him back in as uh, as just one aspect of these deals goes haywire after another. And he's he's basically trying to pull all these threads together as everything is kind of crumbling underneath his feet. You know, um, in fact, they, they, I mean, it's called layer cake because, uh, Michael Gambon makes a reference to all the strata you have to climb through. So you don't, you don't have to take any crap anymore, but it, it also feels like this whole world that's crumbling bit by bit underneath him as he's just trying to make this one last score, which of course is such a, such a cliche, but, uh, it, it, he is uh, he is fantastic here, trying to pull everything together, and he's such a smooth operator, even when he's getting his head kicked in by Cole Meany. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, if you haven't seen this, you're, it, it is a real treat, and it's great to see so many familiar faces. Ben, weird that his cue from the Bond films, Ben Wishaw, shows up here as one of the low-level thugs um, that he is to contend with. So, uh, lots of lots of treats in store if you've never seen Layer Cake. Yeah, absolutely. And I the thing about Daniel Craig, his eyes—I feel like they did post-production on that film where his eyes. Are are so blue, 
<laughs> almost hypnotizing. I feel like he's, you know, there, no one has eyes that blue except for a husky. Uh, but, uh, and also I want to shout out to the locations in Layer Cake. A lot of Canary Wharf and yes. Greenwich Park, which are well used. Um, now I know we're, we're starting to run out of time. We have so many movies that we saw and so little time to talk about them. Uh, you know, I, 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 I want to talk a little bit about London Boulevard, which was a film I thought was better than its reviews, starring Ray Winstone, Keira Knightley, and Colin Farrell. But, uh, but, and also another movie I watched that I really liked was An Education, uh, Lona Scherfig's wonderful film uh, adapted by Nick Hornby and, and gave Carrie Mulligan her starring role. Both of those films use London locations so well and are really charmers. Um, a Fish Called Wanda, I watched again. <laughs> uh, that's uh, That never, I mean, comedies don't, tend to age well, I find, but that one has a lot to recommend it. Um, but, uh, you know, you saw, and and I this is one I recommended to you, was Redemption, which in the UK is called Hummingbird. Uh, it's from 2013, and it was directed by Stephen Knight, who is a name that we see again and again in, in uh, well, lately. I mean, he, he's responsible for Peaky Blinders, a TV series. He wrote Eastern Promises for David Cronenberg, and he did Locke, which is a movie we talked about fairly right, recently. Yes. Um, but this is an odd one. It's a bit, it's, it's, um, it's a Jason Statham film, but it's not your average Jason no, Statham. You will film. believe Jason Statham can cry. Yeah, yeah. And he's, <laughs> it's 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 a drama about a British veteran of the conflict of Afghanistan who's been living on the streets in London, sort of protecting a teenager, and through a strange series of events, takes over the posh apartment of an actor who's away in New York City for the summer. So that sort of straightens him out when he gets a place to live and he gets some cash, uh, and then he gets a job in a Chinese restaurant and very, eventually finds his way to becoming uh, an enforcer for Chinese gangsters. It turns out he had a child with a woman who's angry with him, and, a, and he, again, he makes a, a friends with a nun. In some ways, it's funny. It kind of shadows the story of Mona Lisa, but in a different way. Yeah. You know, it's like um, he, he's much less naive than George, the, the, um, the character from that film. Uh, he's... He's he's a man with a lot of violence and anger in him, and that he uses to straighten out, you know, thugs. Um, and I, I actually thought that Statham was really good in this. I don't, the film is is I, I think it's genuinely entertaining. I think it has some issues. The cinematography is gorgeous and makes London's back alleys seem slightly glamorous. Uh, I certainly think it's relevant. Stories of people who are you know dying in trucks trying trying to get to the UK because there's this whole human trafficking subplot in the picture. But um, yeah, if you're a Statham fan, haven't seen it, you should certainly check it out. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Lends Me Your Ears. My name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at ns underscore s c o o k e. My name is Karsten Knox, and you can find me through my my blog, Flaw in the Iris, and that's what my Twitter account is called as well. And, of course, we want to thank CKDU for all their help with the uh, production facilities and airing the show every other Tuesday on uh, at 5.30 p.m. And, of course, uh, if you want to support the show, we have a Patreon uh, that you can uh, send some money our way if you liked uh, what you heard or enjoyed past episodes. And uh, we also have a page on Facebook and the at Rears Twitter account. And thanks, as always, to the folks at the Village Soundcast Network who put everything together, Gypsophilia for the wonderful music, and you, the listener, for tuning Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.